0: Bibles now to 1st Timothy chapter 5. Moving through 1st Timothy, we've come to chapter 5, and we'll look at the first couple verses here in 1st Timothy 5. Paul tells Timothy, do not rebuke an older man. The older I get, the more I like this. (laughs) But exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, Younger women as sisters with all purity. Paul, in talking about relationships in the body of Christ, is here utilizing the metaphor of the family. And the family was one of God's greatest creations. It was one of his greatest ideas. When he created the world, he made everything and he said it was good. Except there was one thing that he saw that wasn't good. And he said, it isn't good that this guy I've made should be alone. And so he created a helpmate, a partner to go with him. And the plan was for them to multiply and have a family and to begin that process of, of just fulfilling all that God had for the earth. And when you think about it, it was a great idea to have people who need each other Who are connected to each other, who depend on each other, can look out for each other. They know that they are a part of each other and to have children who will then carry on and perpetuate all that you establish. And it was certainly a glorious idea. God felt it was so good that He later used the family as the primary metaphor, in many ways, for the church to to establish how we are to relate to each other. In fact, family was so important that God used the picture of a father and a son to exemplify his own relationship within the Trinity. He used the metaphor of marriage to describe the kind of relationship that God wanted to have with his people. Now, unfortunately, it's hard for us to get a handle on some of this because We see in our society that the family unit has deteriorated. The image of what family ought to be is so far removed from God's original intent and design that to talk about treating each other as family for for many is something that is hard to relate to at all. And people nowadays like to talk about how, oh, the family is under attack, the family has been assaulted, we're losing the sense of family, and I would agree with all of that. But usually when that's said, it's referring to the fact that, boy, families aren't what they used to be back in the 50s, back in my day. That just through these last 50 years or so, family has just been devastated and destroyed. But a lot of that is, frankly, an illusion. I mean, our image of family might be like Leave it to Beaver that's still popular in reruns because, yeah, that's what a family ought to be. I hate to shatter your world, but Leave it to Beaver wasn't real. (laughs) Those weren't real people. That was the story. In real life, Barbara Billingsley, Hugh Beaumont, Tony Dow, and Jerry Mathers, the Beaver... Well, they were all divorced. None of them could stay married. In fact, ironically, the only guy on that show that's still married, after he just celebrated his 39th anniversary, Eddie Haskell. (laughs) Ken Osmond. And isn't that the way it usually is? The, The guy that everybody thinks is the bad guy ends up being the only one on the show that knows how to have a relationship. The truth is, though, the family didn't start to break down in the 60s. The family started to break down in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. God created Adam and Eve to be there for each other, but they didn't look out for each other. Adam didn't provide that covering for his wife that God wanted him to. As a result, she fell into sin, and then she led him to fall into sin, which destroyed everything. And then, shamefully, he blamed his wife for his own sin. Their first two kids, Wally and the Beave, well, Wally killed Beaver in real life. (laughs) And ever since then, society, the family was broken, was just devastated. God gave marriage and said, the two become one flesh. But very quickly, men figured, hey, if one wife is good, more would be even better. And there were all sorts of violations and all sorts of of betrayals. And the story of history is a story of God's picture of what a family ought to be, just being completely devastated. And finally, God comes along and says, you know what? You guys have messed up family so much. I'm going to give you a new family. And that's the body of Christ. That's the church. You are to be family for each other in a way that so often biological families never figure out what they can do. The body of Christ is to function as the family of God with our heavenly father in, in charge. And, and, and so God gives us that challenge. And yet still so often we have fallen so far short of God's ideal for the family. And yet he calls us to that as an ideal, and he encourages us to move in that direction. And so here in these two verses, God is talking about communication among the family. He's talking about how we are to minister to each other, how our communication should be within the body of Christ. And... He says, do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. In our society, certainly, the advantage of age is lost on most people. And I know the older I get, the less respect I seem to get. Now, there are some cultures that do better at this than others, whereby a man who has lived his life and provided for his family and set an example and worked hard is still considered to be a valuable resource, is still considered to be an asset, a wealth of wisdom. And that's a beautiful thing when that happens, and certainly God would like it to be that way. So often we don't look on old people that way. We see you know, an old man as just being kind of obsolete because knowledge is increasing so much that everything that I have learned in my life is just a fraction of what there is to know now. And the truth is, though I've had a lot of experience in my life, I can't remember a lot of it, <laughs> and I get it kind of confused, and, and as a result, Old men are seen as those who are sometimes just wearing out. But Paul is here talking to Timothy, a man who he had just encouraged earlier to not let people look down on his youth. And he said, don't let people look down on your youth, but be an example. But for you, don't you look down on old men. Respect them in the way that it was designed to be. I think of from the beginning. You know, old men, before the flood, people lived a long time. You know, and and guys like Adam lived like 900 years, over 900 years, 950 years. Methuselah lived 969 years. So much of what was passed down to generations was passed down by old men who in those days were really old, and they could tell what had happened. And share those stories and communicate those values and those experiences. And God set that up for a reason. But when people just showed that it was hopeless and they weren't going to have that kind of respect, I mean, horrible things that happened to Noah right after the flood, for instance, from his own family. And it started to break down, and so God mercifully gave us a life that doesn't last as long as it used to. But here Paul is telling Timothy, you are to see older men as being objects of respect and appreciation. And, and not just your own father, others as well. Others who have been there for you or have been there for others. And this is something that we need to learn as a church, as a people. To see older people and appreciate what they have to offer. Yes, there are some things that they can't do any longer. There are some things that they aren't as good at. You might have to help them get their computer restarted. But on the other hand, there are things that they have learned and experiences that they have, and we should be the type of people who who want to listen to that, who want to benefit from that. And so he says, have a relationship with older men as God would have you to relate, in the best sense of the word, to a father. And then he says, younger men as brothers. Don't look down on youth, but see them as your brother. If they're younger than you, less experienced than you, see them as your little brother. See them as someone that you have an opportunity to influence, to encourage, and to help. Now again, depending on the kind of relationship that you had with your brother, this might be hard to get your head around, but the, the bond that God intended brothers to have, standing back to back against the world, defending each other, protecting each other, encouraging each other, cheering each other on. He said every young man in the church you should see as that kind of a relationship, as that type of a connection and an appreciation. And for those older women, see them as mothers. See them as being ones who have, again, like the old men, paid their dues, lived their life, learned lessons. Those who fed you when you couldn't feed yourself. Those who changed your diapers. Those who believed in you when no one else did. Those who who laid their own life down so that you could be able to be someone and have something and be there. Those who sacrificed for you, not just to your own mother, but to every older woman who's around. And he's going to talk a lot about widows. We'll get to that later in the chapter next week. But um, he's saying, look on each older woman in the body as if she's your mother, as the way that God would have you relate to A mother, that's the way that you are to relate to these older women. And then for the younger women, see them as being your sisters with all purity in a really clean way. Younger women are those who have been most probably um, taken advantage of by society. Younger women tend to be the most vulnerable, and as a result, if you're going to line up victims, and there are all sorts of victims, but unfortunately in this world, young women have been most horribly made victims. And probably some of you women ha- have had things happen to you in your lives, if we're anything like the general population, whereby someone took advantage of their superior strength and and has have forced themselves in some way to control you or to victimize you and In the church, it shouldn't be that way. In fact, we should protect every young woman as if they were our own sister, as if we would do anything, put our life in the way between someone who would endanger them, someone who would hurt them, someone who would victimize them, and ourselves. And and put ourselves on that kind of a position with women. I, I think that even in the body of Christ, we don't have a great enough sense of protecting those around us who are weaker, whether they be women or other people who might be victimized. But God created that family unit so that those who are weaker would have a barrier of protection. And Paul is saying here to Timothy, make sure that you make that happen. Make sure that you are one who would protect those who are weaker. And again, to look at a woman as being your sister and to maintain a pure relationship with her. Because women, when they're younger, tend to have something that that there are some strong, evil people that want what they have. That's what makes them such a target of predators. And he says, don't you look at a woman in an impure way. I don't care whether she's your sister or not. Look at her as if she is, and that you want the best for her. And that you look for her in a way, look at her in a way that's clean and, and pure and helpful and encouraging. Every young woman should feel that she's surrounded by big brothers when she's in the assembly of the believers. And so he talks about these relationships, but the two words that he uses to describe the plus and the positive and negative side of these relationships, what he's really talking about is communication. And notice that he says, don't rebuke, but exhort. And in each of these four relationships, he is offering the possibility of two different types of communications with each of these demographic categories, with each of these relationships. Do not rebuke, but instead make sure that you exhort. These are two interesting words, and, and for a lot of people, they might see rebuke and exhort as being kind of the same thing, but they're very different. The word for rebuke here is, a, is the word epipleso. It's a word that means... It, well, it was a word that was used in fabricating metal. The word literally means to beat upon or to beat down. It's a word that refers to when um, a blacksmith or a a metalsmith would, would take a piece of metal and want to form it, and so they would beat on it repeatedly over and over again and form it over a shape that would then mold and shape it to what the person wielding the hammer and the heat would desire. And so he's saying, don't beat on people. Don't repeatedly pound them. Don't forcibly try to mold and shape them as if they are a piece of metal that is there just for your fabrication. But, he says, exhort. Now, a lot of times we use the word exhorting and it sounds an awful lot like a beating down. But the word exhort, I've shared this with you many times in the past. This word comes up in Scripture so much, and it's a beautiful word. It's the word parakaleo. It's the word that means, kaleo means to be called, and para means alongside. And it's a word that means to be called alongside someone. The idea is to encourage. The idea is that when someone needs you, that you will be there for them, standing by their side, your arm around them, pulling them in close, and telling them, hey, you can do this. I'm going to stick with you, I'm going to be with you, and and we'll walk through this together. It's the word that's used as a name for the Holy Spirit, the parakaleo, the comforter, the encourager, the one who comes alongside to help you. Now, it is day and night, the difference between encouraging or exhorting someone as a parakaleo And rebuking someone, beating them down, epipleso with someone in a relationship. And understanding the difference and then making sure that your communications with those in your family and with those in the family of God is more toward exhorting than rebuking is what Paul is trying to get through to Timothy here. And it's easy to fall into rebuking, isn't it? Because you and most people who rebuking start out meaning well. You see someone messing up and you think, I've got to fix them. I've got to force them to do what's right. I see what's good for them, and now I just need to mold and shape them. Many people get married with the expectation that this is a fixer-upper project. And I think with enough beating on this person, they'll actually become worthwhile. And that's the way some of us approach child-rearing. That's the way some of us are as a friend, and unfortunately, I'll tell you something, from an awful lot of pulpits, you get a lot more beating down than encouraging and being called alongside. And, and Paul here is addressing an elder, a pastor, And so starting with him saying, make sure that when you are talking to people, that you are not beating up those old men for their frailty in their old age. You're not beating up those young men because of their youthful foolishness or enthusiasm. You're not beating up those old women because it's so easy to apply guilt to them. You're not beating up those young women because... They're vulnerable. He says, no, you are to be called alongside to encourage. You are to be exhorting as a partner, as a friend, rather than rebuking as a superior. And there is a night and day difference, and you know the difference because every day you probably get a taste of both. I hope you get a taste of exhorting. But I know that the world is out to beat you up, and so you know what it's like to be crushed, to be pounded down. You know what that kind of ministry feels like. The difference is profound. Now, consider the prefixes on both of these words. The prefix for exhort is the word para, it means to be alongside. The the prefix For rebuke, is the word epi, it means to be upon something or on top of something. So how are you talking to your family? And how are you talking to members of the body of Christ, others that God brings upon your path? If you are talking down at them, that would be categorized as rebuke. If you're coming off as if I am superior to you, I am more experienced than you, and thus you just need to listen to what I have to say because I'm above you, rebuke. If you are coming alongside someone and saying, I know exactly how you feel. I know what you're going through. I understand. And I'm with you. I'm behind you. I'm on your side. That is exhorting. Now, you might go, but come on. I mean, look at God. God... Tells us all kinds of things as being the one who is high and above us. Doesn't God talk down to us? Not at all. In fact, if, if that's what you think, you don't understand the meaning of Christmas. Because God wanted to help us, and he knew the only way he could do it is by becoming one of us. Christmas is all about God coming to our level. Coming alongside of us. Rather than nailing us from above, that doesn't work. The law was an attempt to help people to see that they needed help, but it really didn't provide them help. Help was provided by the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. He became a man on Christmas. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And effective ministry is always that. As soon as we are coming off like I am better than you, I'm smarter than you, I'm bigger and stronger than you, we've entered into a rebuking. And it can happen in all of these relationships, by the way. That that superiority. Because a young person can make an old person feel marginalized and devalued because of what they don't know or can't do. Uh, An older person can make a younger person feel... Inferior because of their lack of experience. They haven't proven anything yet. In either case, talking down at someone will never help them. It's only coming alongside people that can help them. And that's why when Jesus came down and lived with the people, he said, it's going to be even better for you because I am going to send the parakaleo, the comforter, and he's going to actually live in you. And when he comes upon you, it's from within. He's a part of you. He'll be, he'll be living with you, speaking to you, and so I will be with you always in the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's how he does it. He, he, he's there with us. He's not over and above us trying to beat us into submission. It's not on top of It's alongside. Now, it's also interesting, look at if para is alongside the other half of the word for parakaleo is kaleo. It means you're called to to help someone. You really need to be asked. They need to give you permission to do that. The Bible says that God will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. And the Holy Spirit is in us, but he doesn't force himself on us. He doesn't make us even get saved. He doesn't make us obey. He's there waiting for us to call. And when we call, he's always there for us. As opposed to someone who isn't asked and just volunteers their help. Most of the time, we don't appreciate that. I, I sometimes have people who want me to go minister to somebody else. I had this week um, a friend of mine who's a pastor up north um, emailed me and said, hey, there's a girl from my church who's down there near you. Her dad's in the hospital. Could you, could you go by and visit him? And I wrote back and I said, sure. And I emailed her and I said, hey, just you know, let me know when's a good time and I'll come by and visit your dad. And she said, well, I need to make sure that I'm there preparing him because he doesn't know you're coming he's going to freak out and he has this heart condition and he's probably going to be mad that I'm bringing a pastor in. And I said, you know, I'm not a pit bull that you're going to sick on your dad. I I really ask your dad if he would like to talk to a pastor and if he would I'll be, I'll be there. I'll be happy to do that. But I I've had too many experiences where people tried to get me to be the one to force my ministry on someone, and I've never seen it help. I remember one time a few years ago, I had a guy call and his wife is caught up in an affair. And, and um, so he said, is there any way, I don't think my wife would want to come to the office. Is there any way you could come to our house and talk to me and my wife? And I said, sure. And he gave me his address and he lived off in you know, half hour from here or something, and so I drove up there. He said, "You know, can we do it early in the morning before she goes to work?" And I said, "Sure." So I show up at their house, and he met me in the driveway, and he said, "Shh, okay, come here." And I, it ended up it was an ambush. <laughs> she didn't know. All of a sudden, she comes down the stairs, ready to go to work, and, and a pastor and her husband are jumping her and confronting her on this, and it really didn't go very well. <laughs> And it never does. Now you go, but there are people in my life who really need to be corrected, and I I see it and I need to do it. Well, then what you need to do is live the kind of life and establish the kind of relationship that those people want your help. If people aren't asking for help, you're not going to help them, whether you want to or not. You will just be intruding on them, forcing yourself on them, and exhortation comfort is waiting until you're invited into a situation and then yeah whatever i can do to help i'll want to do it a lot of people sit around and and just are waiting for someone to come to them to minister to them nobody ever calls me nobody ever checks up on me well you know maybe we don't want to be like you know jehovah's witnesses banging on your door and bugging you so Hey, how about asking? How about saying, a little help here? And then, sure, people will be glad to come alongside you, but, but ministry, when it's done properly, is at request. It's not something that's just that you're forcing on people. That's, that's not how it works. That's rebuke. That's not exhort. Now, another thing is real ministry and real exhortation is something that, you know, isn't forced. It's not, I am going to make you become something that you are. It's suggesting. And think about how the Holy Spirit deals with us. Now, remember, the Holy Spirit is God, completely God. That means he is what we call omnipotent. He has all power. And he lives inside you, and he sees everything, and he can read your thoughts. Don't you think that must drive him crazy when he sees what we're doing? And he knows he could stop it, and he is grieved, but he doesn't stop it? Boy, if a lot of us were the Holy Spirit, it would be more like this. Somebody starts to make a mistake... And we would just kind of gently grab them by the throat and begin to twist, and they'd be choking, and you tap tap, okay, God," And then, okay, good, I'm glad we got that straightened out. And that's the way a lot of us try to help each other and minister to each other, by force. The Holy Spirit never does that. He is willing to let us make our own mistakes, and He is quietly whispering in our ear, he is quietly sharing with us what we need to hear. And that's what we need to learn to do for each other within our families, within the body of Christ. To whisper instead of screaming. To suggest instead of forcing. See, it's not your job to mold and shape anyone else. In fact, you have a full-time job trying to deal with yourself. But if, if what you're trying to do is beat on someone else for their good, you're not doing them any good. You're really not helping yourself either. It's about exhortation and encouragement. It's not about force and and struggle and I know what's best for you. The end result is way different too. You'll know when you've been rebuked because you'll just feel beat up. You'll just feel like, man, I am thrashed. And I, I hate it when sometimes after church, somebody will come up and go, boy, you really kicked my tail today. I, I, I just feel like I'm completely thrashed. I'm just laid out and I'm like knocked out. And I'm, just... and I'm supposed to go, oh, thank you. <laughs> if I make you feel that way, I must have leaned in the rebuke direction instead of the exhort direction. See, when you're exhorted... You feel a lot different than that. After talking about things that are even wrong in your life, you feel encouraged. You feel like there's hope. You feel like, I'm glad I got that off my chest. I'm glad I dealt with that. Now, you know there are some people, after you talk to them, you go away feeling better. There are some people, after you talk to them, you go away feeling condemned and worse. I share with people often, you can tell if the Holy Spirit's talking to you or if the devil's talking to you. Because the devil, the accuser of the brethren, is one who piles condemnation on you, who makes you feel terrible about yourself, who makes you feel like you're hopeless, like you'll never make it. When the Holy Spirit talks to you, you feel encouraged, you feel edified, and built up, and, and lifted up. And it's, it's comfort instead of that you know, condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation never comes from God. He doesn't do that. Unless you ultimately reject him, and then the day will come when you're stuck and all you have left is your own condemnation because he's done everything he can do, and you've rejected what he's done for you. But on a day-to-day basis, don't you want someone who does what the Holy Spirit does? who kind of lets you do what you're going to do, calmly makes suggestions to you, sets an example to you, will be with you no matter what, will be alongside you, will never leave you or forsake you. And then when you make a decision to do what's right, they go, I'm so proud of you. That's awesome. You're doing well. Do people make you feel like you can do this or do people make you feel like you can't do this? Now, the truth is, we've all endured a ton of rebuke. In fact, this whole world is full of ways in which you can feel incompetent, in which you can feel like you don't matter. This world will treat you like you're a number. This world is full of systems that that aren't going to fit for what you're doing, and it's frustrating, and you feel like you're in a constant juggling act. Kind of like I was yesterday. I went to, to Walmart and I was buying these, these um, soccer balls and pumps to put in my presents for Pedro Pedragalas. And I thought, you know, this is cool. Somebody else gave me the idea and I stole it. I figured, well, they can't have too many soccer balls down there in Mexico. So, and the, the little church where the soccer field is, balls go down the hill all the time and everything. So I thought, this works. They'll be excited about this. So I'm in Walmart. So far, so good. I get a, you know these soccer balls, and I throw them in the basket. The basket's all full, get the pumps, and throw those in. And then I get to the checkout, and I'm thinking, I'm in kind of a hurry, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go in the self-checkout line. And I'm just going to go through and knock these things out. Well, what happens is they give you a little square about this big that all your products have to fit in. And these soccer balls are in these square boxes, but they have round edges all over them, so they don't stack well, but this stupid computer, you know. I first of all, the barcode is on the ball, not on the box. So you have to spin the ball around until you find the barcode, and then you finally get it to ding, and then you put it down, and then you you'd finally do the next one. And the people behind me in line are getting frustrated. They have like one candy bar or something, and I've got all these soccer balls, and and they're like, you know, being angry, and I'm twisting this ball, and then the next one goes on there and it falls down and the computer starts lecturing me, you know, put it, in the, put it in the bagging area, okay? So it can tell how much weight is there. So after about five or six of these balls, I'm balancing them, I'm juggling these balls, leaning them up against the kind of cash register, I'm holding them with one arm while with the other hands I'm rotating the next ball to find the barcode and I'm pushing buttons with my knee and, I'm, and these things are just crashing down. Well, that's what life does. You know that is, That's not just Walmart, that's life. And it, it beats us up. And every day, one thing or another, in one way or another, I feel like I've been on an anvil and boom, boom, boom. Well, hey, guess what? When you come home, that's not what you need. More beat down. You come home, you need to relax. You need to be encouraged. Exhorted, comforted. You need to be told, hey, you can do this. You know, you can get up and, and go do it again tomorrow. If something's not right, you know, you can take that stuff back and, and you know get something else or whatever. You can do it. I I know you can. Well, for each one of us, and if you go back into your history, let's face it, we've all been on the anvil. We've all been subject to angry, manipulative controlling selfish people who have beaten and beaten and beaten on us and now we're like man i it's so nice when the lord comes along and says hey you're like clay i'm just gonna mold you gently i don't need to fabricate you like a piece of metal and we have a chance to be a part of that in the lives of those in our families and in the lives of the people around us. And this week, I pray that you'll consider what comes out of your mouth, how you're communicating to others. Does it sound more like a beatdown, or does it sound more like a breath of fresh air? Is Is it rebuking, or is it exhorting? Is it treating someone the way that God would have families relate to each other? Or is it treating someone like a, you know, a worthless stranger that you don't care what the effect is on them? That's our choice on a moment-by-moment basis. And if you've been doing a lot of beating down this week, I don't want to beat you down for that. I just want to tell you, it can be different this week. You don't have to be that way. It's You know, the the funny thing is, when you're pounding on other people, you're also pounding on yourself. Stop that. Don't do it. You'll find when you lift others up, it will lift you up. God knows what he's doing. God knows what his design for the family is. And he tells us, hey, whatever your family has been, you got a family of God. This is a place where we need to treat each other in a way that will build up and encourage comfort and strengthen. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word today. And I know even right now, Satan's coming in and trying to add to it and make people just feel terrible about the way they've been or make people even bitter about the way they've been treated. There are some people who Satan's whispering in their ear that the whole point of this message is how lousy their, their mother or father was or their wife or their husband or their boss But Lord, your message is always a message of comfort and strength. So help us to hear it from your heart. And help us to take responsibility for how we communicate with others. To see every older man as a respected father figure. To see every older woman as a dear, loving mother. To see every young man as someone who's our brother, who would have our backs. To see every young girl as our treasured sister who we would do anything to protect. Lord, help us to learn to communicate the way that you would have us to. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.